Good morning. It is cold. It's cold again, but that's that's what happens in the winter time. And so I'm thankful this morning for a warm church, not only warm in in the physical, but also warm in the spirit. Looking forward to having lunch next week. We're going to have turkey and dressing, so we'd love to see you all for lunch next Sunday to be able to fellowship and to talk and to enjoy each other's company. And so make plans to be here uh, for that as well and to eat with us. I also want to say a word uh, about Veterans Day. We are grateful uh, for our veterans and for their service to our country. And so we want to recognize our veterans that are in the room today. If you are a veteran, uh, if you will, if you're able, please stand or raise your hand. And so we would like to recognize them this morning. Thank you for your service to our country. I'm reminded of the words of uh, the people of Israel when they were going into the land, the promised land. They said this to Joshua, All you command, we will do, and wherever you send, we will go. And certainly that is true of our service uh, folks. They do whatever is commanded of them, and they go wherever they are sent. And we're grateful for the freedom that we have to be able to come together and worship and to enjoy uh, each other in this worship service today. As was mentioned, our lesson text is from the book of Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. And the verse that I really want us to pay a lot of attention to, even though we're going to look at that passage, is verse... Uh, number 16 that says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's a very interesting passage to me, and it comes from the book of Romans. And the book of Romans was a book that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome way back in A.D. 55. And really the theme of the book of Romans is the salvation of humanity and God's righteousness in saving man. How He saves man and God's righteousness in saving mankind. And the verse that many of us are familiar with is chapter 1, 16 and 17 where it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And in that passage it tells us that God has chosen to save humanity through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the work of of Jesus Christ through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So not only does God save us from evil, but God also saves us from suffering and from death. And that is the righteousness of God, that He has come to save all people everywhere through Jesus Christ. So the book of Romans is a very deep book. It's a very scholarly book. He refers to the Old Testament a lot. 
It's very intellectual. If you go reading into the book of Romans, you're going to get about as deep as you can get. And also, it's a very spiritual book. It's very wise. So this passage, the Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit is who God is, who Paul is talking about, bears witness with our spirit. And the first idea that comes to my mind when I hear the term witness is what? I start thinking about litigation. I start thinking about a trial. And growing up, I loved all those law TV shows. I remember growing up watching Matlock. And I thought Matlock was so cool because he was kind of this humble trial lawyer that would always kind of outsmart everybody. And what came about in those trial shows was what you call a Perry Mason moment. And it even happens in trials today where the jury and the judge and the people, they're surprised at a certain revelation that happens in the trial. You know, Perry Mason always had that moment in the trial where the witness or something came up that exhibit B and that evidence and everybody turned their heads and the whole course of the trial had changed. And I think about a witness in a trial when I hear this term, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. A witness. Also, I'm reminded of that movie, A Few Good Men. You remember Jack Nicholson? You can't handle the truth, right? But my favorite trial moment, I think, is in To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird is one of the great works of American fiction by Harper Lee. And in the trial, Tom Robinson is basically railroaded because of his race. Because he's black, no one wants to believe him. And, and so Atticus Finch shows that whoever struck the young lady had to be left-handed. And so when he throws a ball at, at Tom Robinson, he cannot catch the ball with his left hand because his left hand is disabled. He couldn't use his left arm because it had been disabled in a farming accident. So there was no way that Tom Robinson hit that young girl. And it was actually her father. But because of his skin, he was railroaded and convicted. But the truth was still there, wasn't it? And that's what a witness is there to do, to tell us the truth, to show us the truth. That's the purpose, and that's the purpose of God's Spirit, is to bear witness of the truth of who we are and to who we belong to. The truth has always been important. Witnesses have always been important. In fact, in the Torah, in the Old Testament, capital offenses... And the death penalty would not happen with just one witness. It says in Deuteronomy 17.6, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. So when it came to capital punishment in the Old Testament, you could not kill somebody if you only had one witness. It took two or three to establish that word. And so witnesses are important, aren't they? In fact, Jesus said of His disciples and of His apostles, He says, I am making you witnesses 
to those who were in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And so the apostles, the disciples that walked with Jesus, they were witnesses of what Jesus had accomplished in his life. That word, interestingly enough, is also the same Greek word that we get the word martyr from. That because of their testimony to who Jesus was, they eventually, most of them, were killed for their faith in Jesus. But a witness has to have certain elements for it to be valid. Number one, if you are a witness, according to the government, according to the law, the physical and mental capacity to perceive and recollect the facts. First of all, you have to have the ability with your senses and with your mind to be able to perceive what happens. Secondly, the witness did in fact perceive and record and recollect the facts. You have to be there circumstantially. You have to observe what has happened for you to be the witness, right? It can't be hearsay. It can't be what someone told you. But if you're a true witness, you're there for the fact of whatever you're testifying about. Three, a criteria for a witness is, a witness takes an oath. We've seen it, haven't we? A witness gets up there and they put their hand on the Bible and they swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help them, God. And so there's even a moral aspect to witnessing, to testifying to the truth, isn't there? If you get a liar on the stand, can you trust their testimony? You can't. And then lastly, the criteria for witnesses, they have to have the mental capacity to express the facts that are under questioning. You have to be able to communicate the testimony for it to be valid and to be accepted by the courts. You say, why are you talking about witnesses? Because we're talking about the Holy Spirit and the witness of the Holy Spirit. But then, in 1985 or so, a new form of evidence came into being. And it's another really type of witness. And it's called DNA evidence. You see, now not only do we call upon those witnesses that have eyes and, and testify and who maybe saw something, but there is an inner witness, isn't there? And you can't fool anybody when it comes to DNA evidence. Because if they have your DNA evidence at the scene of the crime, you're in trouble, aren't you? You're in big trouble. And the amazing thing about DNA evidence is that since 1989, 362 people have been exonerated from being accused of a crime. That 362 people were convicted, but because of an inner witness, because of DNA evidence, because of who they are, biologically, the truth has been found. And 362 people have been exonerated. They averaged 14 years in the penitentiary. The total years served of these innocent people, get this, 5,014 years behind bars and they were innocent. The average age at the time of conviction was 26.5 years of age and the time in which they were exonerated, they were 43 years old. And then out of all of those 362, 
158 other people who were actually the criminals were found guilty and then convicted and put in jail because of an inner witness. Because of that DNA evidence, that three billion sets of DNA that's within us. In fact, if you were to take that three billion base pairs that's inside of you and you were to stretch it out, it'd be two miles long. And if you were to take the DNA in all of your cells, in every cell, and you stretched it out, it would be the size twice of the universe. That's how much evidence, how much information is inside your cells. And now we use it as a witness as to whether someone is guilty or innocent. Just as there is an inner witness when it comes to trials, there is an inner witness spiritually. And the first type of inner witness that I want to talk to you about is the inner witness within Scripture. That there is an inner witness in Scripture itself. And one of those inner witnesses to the truth of God's Word is the fact that there are prophecies within God's Word. This book is unlike any other book known to man. In fact, one time someone counted up all of the predictions that are in the Bible. And guess how many predictions are in the Bible? 1,817 predictions in the Bible. 1,239 in the Old Testament, 578 in the New Testament, 27% of the entire Bible contains predictive prophecies. 191 predictions concerning Jesus Christ Himself before He ever came to earth. That's quite a testimony, isn't it? When you're able to predict things about someone who hasn't been born yet, and that's what Scripture does. In fact, it predicts his genealogy. It predicts where he's born. It predicts his life and ministry. It predicts his suffering and so on. Not only do we have the prophetic witness in Scripture, but we also have the moral witness in Scripture. When we read Jesus' teachings, we know they're true because they're morally true. He teaches us that there is indeed truth. Some people will try to tell you there's no such thing as truth. But Jesus says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, and that whosoever knows the truth will be made free. He also tells us the holiness and fatherhood of God, that God is both other and immediate, that He's transcendent and present. And He also tells us over and over again in Scripture that love is the most important thing. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all will know that you're my disciples indeed, that you have love for one another. So that's the inner witness of Scripture. But what about this inner witness of the Holy Spirit? Let's turn to Romans 8 and look at it with me. The first thing that we can begin to know about the Spirit of God is by what it's not. And that's what the point of what Paul says in verses 12 and following. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
The first way that we can understand what is of the Spirit is by understanding first by what it's not. And Paul gives us a definition of that, a list of things which are not of the Spirit, but above the flesh. In Galatians 5.19, he says this, that sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, wrath, selfishness, envy, murders, drunkenness, and revelries are not of the Spirit. So if the Spirit is leading you to do those things, what can you assume about that Spirit? It's not God. Because God doesn't lead us to those kind of things. In fact, it says, God has given us a Spirit not of one of fear, but one of power, love, and of a sound mind. So we're led by the Spirit not to do certain things. But what else does Paul say? He says that the led by the Spirit of God, verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So how are we led by the Spirit of God? Well, firstly, God's Word is a tangible way in which He leads us. He's given it to us in His Word. In fact, when it talks about the Word of God in 2 Peter 1.21, it says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to be led by the Holy Spirit, you turn to those men who were moved by the Holy Spirit, which is preserved in Scripture. Also, we know that through prayer, we can have fellowship with the Holy Spirit that we sing and pray with spirit of understanding and with the spirit of the Holy Spirit, and also in our worship with one another. It says, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So being led by the Spirit. You say, well, how do I know? Well, the question is, what is manifesting in your life? What's happening in your life? And that's where you know if the Spirit of God is there or not. Look at what he says in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So if fear and bondage is manifesting in your life, that is not of the Spirit of God. That fear and those kinds of things are from somewhere else. It's from the world and so on. And also it shows us that the Spirit of God brings a level of intimacy into our life by using the word Abba. And of course that word Abba, Father, was an Aramaic phrase that meant the closest to a, a father that you could get. It was what a, a little boy called his daddy in that Jewish society at the time of Jesus. Luther once said concerning this, this is but a little word. Yet notwithstanding, it comprehendeth all things. Because through Jesus, not only do we call God, God, but we call Him Abba, Father. We are brought into proximity, into closeness with God the Father. And then there's hope amidst suffering. And really, that's what he talks about in verses 18 and following. Listen to this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
Do we suffer? Do you suffer? Do people around you suffer? Is this world suffering? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. But Paul says the glory which will be revealed in Christ Jesus at the end of time will not even compare to the suffering that we feel now. He says, verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. We're waiting for something. We're waiting for this to be answered for resolution. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of what? Corruption. That creation will be delivered from death. It goes on to say, liberty of the children of God. We will be set free from these mortal bodies. And he says this, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. You ever groan when you wake up in the morning? You ever feel the weight of your body and the years in your body? I do. And, and the, all of creation feels that. And it's waiting for that resolution in Jesus Christ. It says this, and not only they, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our bodies, that ultimately our salvation is not just one spiritually, but it's one physically. That there is a redemption of these mortal bodies in Jesus Christ. And when we talk about the hope that's in Christ, we're talking about survival. We're talking about living. We're talking about being raised with Him. Verse 24, For we were saved in this hope. Without Christ, what other hope is there? There is none. But the hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We have to wait. We're persevering through this suffering, through this pain, through this death for Jesus to come and to make all things right. And it says that during this time that the Holy Spirit is here to help us in this time. That God hasn't deserted us. We're not orphans. But God the Father has left His Holy Spirit to make intercession. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Are you weak? I am. Are you frail? I am. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Have you ever gotten to that point in your life to where you were so hurt, where you were so wounded, that you didn't even know what to pray for? You didn't even know how to pray to God. And that all that you were left with was with, with groaning, with just noise. And in that inarticulate moment, God has the ability through His Holy Spirit to help us. That He is able to make intercession for you and for me, even when we can't say it. 
when we, even when we don't understand it, with groanings that cannot be uttered. He says this, verse 27, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I don't always know what's right for my life. I don't always know what door to walk through. But it says not only does God give us a Spirit that makes intercession when we don't know how to pray, but He also prays according to the will of God. That even when we don't know that He is making a way for us through our suffering and through our pain. And then we get to verse 28, which is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. It says this, And we know, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. That the Spirit of God and God Himself is working right now in your life. There's an answer there, isn't it? There's a profound answer in verse 28 that no matter what we're going through, no matter what pain, no matter what suffering, no matter what doubt, that God is going to work through that with you. And all things will eventually work out to good. That God has the ability to take our heartbreak. God has the ability to take even death, disease, dying, depression, whatever it is, and take that and work that together to make something good if we trust in Him. So what manifests itself in our lives? What does a life of the Spirit look like? Paul tells us in Galatians 5.22, and he characterizes the work of the Holy Spirit in our life as fruit. As fruit. As something that's alive, as something that is sustaining, as something that helps us. And he says, this is the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Don't you want that in your life? If you sense love in your life, that's from the Spirit of God. Do you want joy in your life? That's from the Spirit of God. Do you want peace? That's from the Spirit of God. Patience or long-suffering. Kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are all fruit of the Spirit. I want that in my life, don't you? Don't you want that in in our world today? The only way that we're going to get it is by depending on the Spirit of God. Depending on His will for our life. And ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit which is promised in the new birth. You see, we're born again of the Spirit with Christ. We were born physically, but when we're born physically, we're born to what? To die, sadly. But when we're born of the Spirit, we're born to live. Jesus said it like this, that unless a man is born again, he will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about a new reality, a new world. And he says, unless you're born again, and and Nicodemus in John 3 said, how can a man be born again? How can he go back and be born in his mama again, right? Jesus said, wait a minute. 
Unless a man is born of the water and of the Spirit, he shall by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so it's through obedience to the gospel, which begins in faith in who Jesus is and begins in baptism. Those in Acts chapter 2 were told, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you want that joy and that peace and that love in your life? The Bible says that if we want that, we have to be led by His Spirit. To be led by His Spirit is to be led by His Word, to be led with His people, and to be led to life. And there is no other answer in this world to death and to misery and to the suffering other than the life of Jesus Christ. Because last time I checked, everybody else is still in the graveyard. Isn't that true? You can talk about Alexander the Great. You can talk about Julius Caesar. You can talk about any philosopher or teacher. But when you talk about Jesus, you find an empty tomb. There's an answer to life there. So this morning, if you have not obeyed the gospel, we want to give you the opportunity this morning. So the next thing that we're going to do is sing this song. And we're going to stand together. And so if you have any need at all, won't you come now as together we stand and as we sing?